Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we get philosophical and ask, if the most complicated skill is to be simple, then the second most complicated skill must be working in insurance. Our head spins reviewing the numbers that categorically confirm insurer profitability is improving, or possibly prove that it's not. After last week's good news, there's more happening with the business interruption test case, but like a man trying to make a belt out of watches, we ask, is it a waste of time? And claims handling is getting more complicated and it's taking longer than ever as the skills shortage and increased competition takes its toll. Hello everyone, on the panel today are Managing Editor John Deeks, Deputy Editor Wendy Pugh, and welcoming back Terry McMullen. Good morning Terry, have you missed us? Good morning, I missed you all terribly, he lied. <laughs> Hello John. Hi. John, what's the most complicated thing you've ever attempted? We, we do try and do the, the crossword in the local newspaper, which we still get uh, delivered every week. And um, I'm sad to say that is quite complicated for me. Well, good morning, Wendy. You have the air of someone that finds nothing difficult. What's your secret? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I'd, I'd say um, I find uh, you know mathematics pretty difficult. <laughs> well, on to this week's uh, stories. So Finity's annual Optima report is out. Wendy, it's about time I learned something from you experts. What is the Optima report and why should I care? Well, it's an annual report that uh, comes out that just does an overview of uh, um, insurer's profitability, really, um, and it breaks it down by uh, class line. So it's a, it's a really good annual kind of snapshot of where things are at. Right, okay. So even I can understand that insurer profitability is an issue. Can you give us the details from this report? Well, the report actually says things have gone from bad to worse uh, rather than improving. So the uh, return on equity was only uh, 2%, which was down from an already poor 3%. Uh, and that is against the uh, background of a target range of 10 to 15%. The industry's insurance margin barely broke even at 0.2%, which was down from 2.6%. And, you know, looking across the classes, motor was the standout sort of positive performer, but most other classes were either below target or loss making. Right. That's a lot of numbers. But, John, I thought we were saying that things were going to be better. Yes, that's right. I remember covering this report last year and, uh, much was made of the return on equity then, which had hit a 20-year low and it was described as you know, falling off a cliff and things like that. And a, a reasonable bounce back was expected in this financial year or the financial year just gone. But instead, as Wendy says, things have gotten even worse. There was lots of optimism, as you say, about 2021, but as it's turned out, it hasn't been all that great. Uh, and we can only hope that 2022 is where the improvement starts. And that is what Finity is now predicting. So we've fallen off a cliff and landed on some spiky rocks. But on the other hand, isn't it a good thing for insurance buyers if insurers aren't making large profits, Terry? Oh, that's a, that's a wicked question. Fact is, if insurance... If the insurance industry isn't making a decent profit, it means that the rest of the economy is also not doing well. Insurance underpins, un unlike, say, the coal industry or, or any of the resources industries or service industries, insurance underpins everything. And if the price of, of insurance is so high because of the fact that they can't make any money out of their investments, then it has to come out of premiums. And that means that everybody is paying to maintain the insurance industry in a 
relatively healthy state. And it's as, as simple as that. Good or bad, you need to have a stable and profitable insurance industry. And why aren't they just putting prices up? They have been putting prices up. They've it's this this is an amazing industry in that when when times are really good, they compete like crazy and they compete on the basis of price. But at the other end, when we are in the sort of situation we're in now where you can't make up the losses from low premiums with investments, you've actually got to start making insurance pay. And that's what's been happening in the past few years as we get closer and closer to the real accurate technical price for risks. What happens once the the market eases, as they say next year, is anybody's guess, but the the history of insurance would say that we then begin the long run downhill again as we compete on price. So let's see. Wendy, in another market report, Gallagher has flagged issues with claims handling. What did you uncover here? Well, um, they say in the context of these difficult market conditions, complex claims in particular are being scrutinised more closely and the claims teams have reduced authorities, make decisions. Then you've got the whole staff shortage issues on top of that, meaning there's just not, you know, the qualified professionals around who can just step straight into those sort of roles. So uh, Gallagher makes a point in their business market update that if you've had to make an insurance claim over the past 12 months, it's likely to have taken more time to resolve than it would have done in previous years. And John, the Insurance Council has also been talking about the COVID impact on claims, haven't they? Yes, I had a chat to CEO Andrew Hall last week, and he's very concerned about things like state border closures and the lack of materials and trades and the impact that this is having on on claims handling. The ICA accepts that these issues have had a significant impact and it's working hard to try and make sure that it doesn't get any worse this summer. Mr. Hall says insurers have to focus on communicating effectively with consumers. But at the end of the day, the situation is out of everyone's control. It's not an easy excuse, he says, but the reality, and this reality could get even worse if there are major catastrophes this summer and the hard state borders aren't relaxed, at least for insurance staff and assessors. Do consumers understand when issues are out of the insurer's control, Terry? Or is the insurer always the easiest target here? Yeah, probably. I don't think we should expect anybody in the world to look favourably on on an industry that takes your money and if you're lucky, you don't actually ever get to make a claim. So there is always a natural suspicion of insurance anyway, because the only time you do interact with insurance is either to buy it or to, to make a claim. They're both insecure times. So, you know, that's that's just the nature of the beast. I don't think we need to worry about that too much. Now, we reported before on rumours surrounding a pending Zurich sale, but more details came out of the newspapers last week, Wendy. Yeah, so well, there's not really that much detail, but um, previously there'd been some suggestions that uh, Zurich, Zurich might be looking to sell some of its Australian general insurance assets, but the Australian data room column says it's actually tapped Goldman Sachs and PwC to look at a potential sale of, of all of its Australian general insurance business with the exception of the travel side. Uh, but the, the company itself has, has not confirmed that as yet. Well, we speculated before, but would you be surprised, Terry, if Zurich gave up its decent presence in the Australian general insurance market? 
No, probably not. Uh, you know, it's getting really squeezy in the middle of the market there with, with Hollard and Allianz and, and others really, really sort of starting to, to push in on there. And Zurich is a very pragmatic company. It, it has, a, uh, of course, a lot of global clients, but maybe it doesn't have many of those global clients sitting here. So getting out of the local insurance market probably wouldn't affect it at all badly or affect the market here because, frankly, there's, a, there's an awful lot of uh, insurers for what is a, a, an increasingly difficult market. So um, they did get out of uh, the Singapore market about 20 years ago and then had to buy their way back in. But again, I, I say that they're a global company. They tend to take a global view of things. They're doing very well on the life and investment side, but in the general insurance side, it's it's not. There's no growth there, as far as I can see, and I think that's what they are probably looking at. So I think the rumours are, are quite possibly true. Sadly, well, there's another chapter in the COVID nineteen business interruption test case saga. Wendy, please tell me this is the final chapter. <laughs> I'm not sure I can tell you that. Um, but appeals have now been lodged, so a, a full court hearing will go ahead from November 8. Now, uh, ICA says poly- policyholders have appealed on five of the test case matters and insurers have lodged cross appeals and notices of contention on those matters. Um, so the process has been expedited, but we, uh, we still have a little uh, way to go yet. Um, and, of course, in the first test case, they uh, went on to seek leave to appeal through the High Court, which actually that was rejected. So I suppose we don't know whether they would take that extra step, step in this this time around as well. Did it need to be this drawn out, John? Good question. Um, some critics point to the UK and the fact that the legal process there finished a long time ago. Um, but ICA and AFCA would argue that there were points on which legal certainty was required, and this is just how long it takes to get that certainty. Hearings have been expedited at every step, so it's hard to see how it could have gone much quicker. Some say there should have only been one test case with everything uh, put together, not two, and it does seem like it was a little bit the wrong way round. Arguments about outdated exclusions in test case one now seem a little bit pointless if the policies didn't provide cover in the first place. But that was the simpler issue to tackle first. Test case two is more complex and more time was needed to gather the most relevant claims. It's all been pretty messy, but probably necessary. And while it does seem to have taken forever, the end is surely now in sight. Well, sometimes complicated things are messy. Finally, we can categorically state that sometimes size does matter. John, can you tell me why we should get excited about 16 centimetre hail? Uh, Well, yes. I mean, hail is is very problematic for insurers, as we know, some some major losses going back through the years. And um, the bigger the hail, the more damage it is likely to do. And there's been a lot of wild weather around the last couple of weeks, including a number of hailstorms on the East Coast. And one of those resulted in grapefruit-sized hail, 16 centimetres in diameter, falling in Yalbaru, Queensland. And I'm sure that would have sent shudders up the spines of many in the industry. Uh, it's it's a, an Australian record, eclipsing 14 centimetres stones from the Halloween hailstorms a year ago. However, apparently 20 centimetres has been recorded 
in South Dakota in 2010. Terry, hailstorms are kind of the dark horses of catastrophes. They're among some of Australia's most expensive catastrophes, aren't they? They certainly are. Um, The interesting thing about hail is it's almost like the real estate argument that it's all about location, location. We do have quite a lot of hailstorms on the East Coast. Most of them happen in rural areas, so we don't really notice um, unless you're a tomato farmer or something like that. But in the, I, I think always I look at the case of Sydney. Sydney's very vulnerable to um, hailstorms. And the best example I can give is, is probably uh, the hailstorms that followed immediately after the, the Newcastle earthquake. I think it was, what was that, 1989. There were two hailstorms hit Sydney within a few months of the Newcastle earthquake and one in North Sydney and one in in Western Sydney, and the combined value of them was way over the cost of the Newcastle earthquake, mainly because they went across all those used car yards, but that's beside the point. Uh, The thing about it is probably the biggest catastrophe we've we've ever experienced here in money terms is the um, April 1999 hailstorm that swept across eastern Sydney. That cost the insurance industry $1.7 billion in those days. Uh, so it's pretty massive and you do have to worry about it. Sydney is very, very prone to, to major hailstorms. So again, as I say, it's all about location, location. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, on all your favourite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.